Great. Thank you for joining us today for the Cascadia Heart Program's conversation exploring mental health and reproductive health equity. I'm April Sweeney. I'm the Chief of Psychiatry at Cascadia, and I am so pleased to introduce our guest, who can best be described as a powerhouse in the field of reproductive health equity. Dr. Maria Rodriguez is Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Oregon Health and Science University and Director of the OHSU Center for Women's Health and the newly established OHSU Center for Reproductive Health Equity. She is a nationally recognized researcher focusing on the intersection of medicine, policy, and economics. Her current research interest includes work on Medicaid policy and reproductive health inequities, utilizing pharmacists as agents to improve access to reproductive health care, and examining the role of incentive measures in improving effective contraceptive use. Thank you for joining us, Maria. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, in mental health, we love stories. <laughs> so <Of course. laughs> I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about your personal journey and your career, how you've gotten to this space uh, in health equity. Sure, of course. Um, so I was the daughter of a school teacher um, in Berkeley during the 60s and um, a physician. And I think what I learned from my parents most growing up was just the importance of both community and giving back. My dad was an immigrant to this country, and I think that always kind of shaped the way I looked at things and, and how I understood um, that a lot of the opportunities I've had have just really been due to kind of where I was born. Um, and so that's, I think, sort of shaped my interest in social justice issues from a young age, but then also kind of that sense of responsibility. That's that's ultimately what led me to a path in medicine. Um, it was during college when I, like, we were required to volunteer for a women's health course. I don't know why. <laughs> there was, like, a volunteer requirement. And I followed along a friend um, who was going to the Feminist Women's Health Center, which is an abortion clinic in Eugene. And speaking of stories, I just got fascinated by the people I met there and the interactions we had. Everybody had their... There's a commonality in all the stories. Pregnancy is a, not a universal experience, but a really common one. Um, and they were all kind of saying the same thing, but they were from all walks of life. And I think that ability to interact with somebody when they're at a really tough place in their life um, and needed kind of sympathy and um, medical help really felt powerful and exciting to me. And that's what kind of led me to where I am today. That's amazing. <laughs> so you're the daughter of an immigrant. Yeah, my father came here from Cuba when he was a boy. Wow, um, and I'm, that's got to be have a huge make a huge uh, impact on your on your uh, your outlook. I think it has given me a different lens through which I view things, um, just my own opportunities, but also fair, I think fairness in general. I'm also one of four children, which I think <laughs> has also very much shaped my attitudes about equity and fairness because <laughs> you know four children were always competing about what's fair, which is mine, all those things. Sure. Well, we get the chance today to talk about a, a you know a wonderful topic, uh, healthcare equity in general, and then I think we can we can drill down a little bit. But you know what I noticed was that coming out of the during the COVID nineteen pandemic, healthcare inequities really got publicized. It was front front page news uh, in the media, um, and p because we were seeing the disparity who was yeah. dying, who was getting sick. Um, be, and for for important reasons, um, but I think that in our fields, in mental health and in reproductive health, uh, disparities have been known and inequity has been known for a long time. Yeah, uh, we've been working on these things for a, a really long time. Um, in behavioral health, um, we know that there are huge gaps in health status, 
outcomes, quality treatment, and access for a bunch of people, and um, including Native peoples, Black and Latino people, Native Hawaiians, Pacific Islanders, Asian Americans, LGBTQ plus folks, people that live in rural communities, and people with disabilities, and then people with persistent poverty. Um, and Behavioral Health and Cascadia has been working on how to address these things for a while um, and have some different ways of looking at things, including community building and how we treat people. Mm-hmm. Can Tell us about the reproductive health uh, equity area. What is reproductive health equity? Yeah. What are you seeing in terms of your folks? I think similar to what you're saying about mental health, um, I think for me the fact that the playing field is not level and never has been was kind of glaringly obvious, especially once you get into medicine and you start seeing that the choices people have are so shaped by where they live, where they come from, um, their ability to have have obtained education, their ability to earn a living wage, all those things, plus how they show up in this world, what their identity is. And um, I think in particular, having done residency in my practice before the Affordable Care Act, what insurance covered for people was so, um, so heartbreaking. I remember patients that we saw, and this is what shaped my research interest in um, Medicaid policy and maternal health, was during my residency, there was um, a lot of changes in the state in terms of who was covered and funding was cut for different hospitals, because we don't have a county hospital here in Oregon. And um, about a third of our patients only had emergency Medicaid. And I had no idea what that was. But it basically turns out that it would cover their hospital admission for childbirth or a life-threatening illness, but no prenatal care or postpartum care. And OHSU and other hospitals had written off a large percentage of that care until this kind of financial crisis in 2004 through, through 2008. And at that point, things got a lot tighter. And so we were having to you know, and it was uh, the same patients, same financial requirements as other people on Medicaid, but their choices were dramatically restricted. If they had diabetes and wanted to kind of follow our recommendations, it would easily be $20,000 out of pocket for their prenatal care. Yeah, it, and it shaped what we could offer them in terms of contraception. It shaped what, what medicines they could take, even how we would sometimes have to triage or manage their labor and delivery. That's it. That's a a big difference. Um, yeah, it was especially hard because most of the emergency Medicaid patients are Latina. Um, and knowing that that was, you know, the same, my father coming from Cuba, that was especially hard to sort of see, knowing that that could have been my abuela had it been um, a different time and different place. Sure, absolutely. Um, so you've seen, it really sounds like we are looking at the same same folks, same struggles. Yeah. In mental health, we had no mental health parity until 2012. Um, and so we have been struggling with the same sorts of issues for a long time. Um, being able to pay people or being able to have people's uh, care paid for is a, is a huge issue. Um, yeah, and leads to major differences in outcomes. Um, tell, can you tell me a little bit about the OHSU Center for Reproductive Health Equity. When it came about, what your vision is and what the priorities are for the for the center? Yeah, sure. The center has been a long-term project. Um, OHSU for a really long time has been a leader in reproductive health. We have um, one of the top fellowships in the country for complex family planning and a large division of people doing work in not just abortion and contraceptive care, but also working with the state to try to reduce maternal morbidity and mortality. 
And so the idea of how it kind of came about was really just centered in reproductive justice work of wanting to ensure that all individuals have the opportunity to decide if and when they want to become pregnant, to parent in sustainable communities, and that they have the resources to, to, them, to, uh, to themselves be empowered to do so. And um, it's kind of accelerated recently following the Dobbs versus Jackson decision, which ended federal protections for abortion. Um, I think one of the things we see in obstetrics and probably in mental health as well is just how these multi-generational cycles of inequity get set up. Because we know that if somebody has, um, somebody's not prepared to parent, but is forced into doing so, that goes along with a lot of depression and anxiety, all of those things shape parenting behavior um, and sort of shape the sort of shape the very beginning of that next generation's experience with the world. Also affects just routine kind of prenatal care behavior and um, seeking care. Absolutely. That leads very, very nicely into my next question, which is what, what do we know about both the impact of having an abortion and being denied an abortion on women's social and health outcomes, including their mental health? What, what do we know and not know? Yeah, we actually know quite a bit. Um, a really impressive study was done a few years ago by um, Dr. Diana Foster from UCSF. What she did was called the Chernaway Study, and it was a national study where it looked at women presenting to abortion clinics across the country, and it looked at people who were right before the cutoff for being able to obtain an abortion, meaning their um, pregnancy was early enough to still obtain care, and women who were just past that point. And it followed them forward for five years and looked at a whole range of health outcomes, um, both physical health, mental health, as well as um, kind of how they were doing economically, what their opportunities looked like in life at that point. And what we saw was that abortion was not associated with adverse mental health outcomes, that women who were able to obtain their abortion were much less likely to be living in poverty, much more likely to have completed their education, and were not experiencing any adverse mental health effects, whereas depression, um, was more common amongst women who were not able to obtain their abortion. That's huge data and really goes against what uh, some of the assumptions, I think, that have been made by our lawmakers. I think that's true. I mean, um, similarly, again, to mental health, abortion is just such a stigmatized topic that people don't like to talk about, even though we know one in a quarter of all American women will have had an abortion by the time they're 45. You know, half of all pregnancies in the United States are unintended and half of those end in abortion. So it's incredibly common. It's one of the most common medical procedures here, but nobody likes to talk about it. And <laughs> that's what kind of blows my mind. Like the most common thing people say to me when they come into clinics seeking abortion care is they want me to know right off the bat, I'm not the sort of person that has an abortion. They are there for an abortion, but they are not that type of person. And that just speaks, I think, to the internal stigma as well as the external pressures people feel about um, just thinking about abortion in general in this country. Absolutely. That experience really resonates with me as a mental health provider, where we will often hear, I'm not, I've, I'm not a depressed person, or I'm not someone who should have depression or would have depression, but here they are presenting for, yeah. for feeling depressed, which is incredibly common as well uh, and highly stigmatized. Um, can you share, you mentioned we're in a post-Dobbs world. Yeah. <laughs> Can you share any clinical cases, um, either either bright spots or difficult spots that you have experienced since uh, since that decision was made? 
Sure, I can share a little bit of both. I mean, we're so fortunate to be in Oregon where abortion is just basic health care and we're able to provide people the care that they need. And we're seeing an increase of people coming to Oregon from across the country where they're not able to get the care they need at home. And um, they're so deeply appreciative of being taken care of. And it's both really nice, but it's also, it's sad, right? That they shouldn't, it shouldn't have to be, this should just be a basic essential health care. And yet they're having to go to these extraordinary lengths to get the care they need. Um, I always remember one particular patient that we saw fairly early after the decision who uh, came to Portland for an abortion. And she came because she um, had done well before her pregnancy. It was highly desired and planned. But during the course of the pregnancy, her kind of normal, what I call garden variety depression and anxiety got a lot worse to the point where she was really crippled by it. She couldn't leave the house. She felt like she couldn't go to work. She tried to seek care for um, her depression from her providers in the state she was living in, but nobody wanted to treat her for fear that the medications would have a bad effect on the pregnancy and that they would be charged with a crime. And that's just so ridiculous. So many medicines, as, as you well know, in pregnancy aren't well studied and we don't have good data on, but it's common sense that you want to take care of the woman first and that if her mental health is good, the pregnancy is going to do well. And so she came to us wanting an abortion, feeling like that was her only way to take care of her mental health and then to be able to try to get pregnant again. Instead, we were able to have her um, come here. We talked, she talked, we listened. We were able to get her mental health stabilized and she continued the pregnancy. And that always just um, I think illustrates for me the type of people that are getting caught up in these incredibly gray areas that the laws have created with their kind of uncertainty and um, oftentimes just incorrect medical assumptions. Absolutely. That's really distressing to hear <laughs> that was the mental health care she was getting in yeah. her state of origin as well, because we know that maternal euthymia in pregnancy is is incredibly important for reasons having to do both with the mom's long-term health, as well as the fetus's health, uh, as well as bonding with that baby yeah. should it be born. Um, and those things are incredibly important for everyone's experience. Uh, any other clinical experiences that feel important to share? Gosh, there's been so many. Um, I think, you know, we take care of a lot of people. I, I think the thing people don't realize about abortion patients in particular is that the majority of them are parents already okay. and that the decision they're making is a tough one, but they're making it because they want to be able to take the best care possible of the children they have. And so we see people coming from all walks of life. Um, some people are really struggling a lot of people do uh, struggle with mental health problems or addiction or just physical health, but it's not an easy decision for anybody, and they're all doing the best that they can. I don't really have another one I can think of. <laughs> um, yeah, that, I think that's really important. We should be listening to people and have them uh, make their own choices. Absolutely. Um, so we know that reproductive health equity is about more than abortion. And you, Absolutely. You mentioned um, maternal mortality and morbidity, which I believe has been a, in a, a crisis state in this country for a long time. But more recently, it's really been shown that this is particularly a crisis among black women, black women in, our, in, our, uh, in our society. What do we need to know about this? What can you tell us? Yeah, you're right. I mean, the United States has one of the worst um, maternal morbidity and mortality rates of any developed country in the world. It's shockingly higher than kind of people and peers in Western Europe or other countries um, that we have similar uh, health health systems to. 
And it's really concentrated among African-American women and Native women. They have about eight times the risk of dying in childbirth as a white woman does, and that's completely unacceptable. I think one of the things that we're learning most about the maternal um, maternal health crisis in this country is just how so many of the problems are really rooted in these deep structural causes, um, whether that's the neighborhoods we live in, systemic factors like racism, or sometimes even Medicaid policy. And that's where my interest has come in, into looking at how Medicaid policy restricting access to care during pregnancy based on citizenship has shaped health outcomes for immigrant women and their families. And it's profound when you look at what it means to not cover basic preventative care during pregnancy. We've shown that when Oregon expanded prenatal care, that it benefited both women and children. For the children that were born, the benefits extended through the first year of life. They were more likely to attend well child checks. They were more likely to receive vaccines. And importantly, there was a significant reduction in infant mortality. Um, for women, the benefits of prenatal care as were a little bit less pronounced. They were more likely to receive sort of standard screening, slightly more likely to get contraceptive counseling and have access to that postpartum. But for women, we really saw the benefit once postpartum care was introduced and people were able to get their follow-up for gestational diabetes, hypertension, um, or help us deciding if and when they wanted to get pregnant in the future. That's a, that's a big change. It is. Is that something that's been ongoing in Oregon? Oregon made... Um, it was kind of federal law that you couldn't extend coverage to emergency Medicaid beyond um, the minimum services unless with, with federal funds. States could always choose to spend their own money. And then in um, 2008, through the Children's Health Insurance Program, states were kind of able to opt in and extend prenatal care with the idea being that it benefited the unborn citizen. Um, and so about 17 states kind of took it, 17 states took advantage of that. Oregon was kind of an early adopter. And so we rolled that out 2008 to 2013. Um, and then um, kind of some of the research we did around that helped support passage in 2017 of Oregon's Reproductive Health Equity Act, which is pretty groundbreaking in terms of what it enshrined into state law. It did multiple things, but it also guaranteed 60 days of postpartum coverage for women with emergent, for people who are low income, regardless of citizenship. That's huge. Yeah. There's a, a, a another bill uh, that's at the forefront right yep. now in the legislature. Do you know much about it, Maria? Yeah, House Bill 2002, I think, is getting, in, getting introduced on the floor next week. It does a number of different things. Um, it's trying to put into state law specific protections for abortion providers with all of the kind of um, actions and legislation being passed, particularly in Idaho, um, where there's criminal charges against people assisting um, anybody to have an abortion, let alone providing one. It's trying to protect providers in that way. It's looking into extending coverage for um, opportunities to kind of do pilot programs so that federally qualified health centers can offer evidence-based reproductive health care, and also to help protect um, access to gender-affirming care. Excellent. Thanks for sharing. Um, I was curious if if we could talk a little bit about the link between women with mental health conditions and postpartum outcomes, mm -hmm. um, which probably does contribute to the morbidity that we see when mental health conditions aren't are, are not managed properly in pregnancy, which is upwards of seventy five percent of women with post with uh, perinatal depression are not treated. Um, what, what, what can you say about, about that link? Or do you, do you know much about that? 
it's an area I've been learning more about and I'm really interested in, in part just because um, kind of recently I've learned that when we're thinking about how do we prevent maternal morbidity and mortality, there's kind of two, there's lots of different work people do. They talk about management of hypertension. They talk about prevention of hemorrhage. But we know both, uh, I served as the chair on Oregon's Maternal Mortality Review Committee. And what we saw is that every single case, except one, basically dealt with mental health issues, a lot of substance abuse, but a ton of depression and anxiety. So seeing that is really what inspired me to figure out, we really need to start earlier. We need to prevent childhood trauma that leads to addiction, that leads to all these mental health problems that then lead to complications in pregnancy and um, frequently maternal suicide. That's one of the leading causes of maternal death in the United States. And so um, I think the things I've learned are just both the importance of starting early and working within our communities, but then also just um, what a difference it makes if you don't have good mental health in terms of your ability to sort of show up for yourself and to take care of yourself during pregnancy, but then also to parent afterwards. Absolutely. And it's true. Suicide is the leading cause of death in women in the first year postpartum, which is a shocking statistic, but very true. Um, You spoke a little bit about um, legislative solutions as potential ways of improving this. Are there other bright spots on the horizon for providing better access to uh, maternal care for underserved women? I think we really need to kind of focus more at the state level at this point. Mm -hmm. I think that... um, A lot of the work needs to be within communities to understand what the particular needs are and how to support them around there. I think there's also a lot of work we can start to do within health systems as well to try to look at the care that we're providing and make sure that it's equitable. I mean, for me, it's always been about focusing on Medicaid and understanding how the Medicaid program benefits people. There's such a disparity in terms of both diagnosis and treatment of um, mental health disorders during during pregnancy or outside of pregnancy when you look by insurance status. And I think that's one critical thing we need to do is to figure out how to improve access to uh, mental health care for everybody who needs it. For sure. And that's a a huge priority uh, at Cascadia. There are lots of ways that behavioral health has been looking at this, including, you know, metrics and data on who are are our patients, who are we missing and why, partnering with community organizations that really know how to connect where there's a greater amount of trust um, and and building also building our behavioral health workforce to look more like the people that we serve yeah. and to be more linguistically and culturally competent um, as well as involving peers across across um, the continuum of care because uh, lived experience says a lot to people mm-hmm. um, so I I think there's probably places where we will we can overlap as we think about these really complex issues. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting. I don't know in your experience if you feel like the boom in telehealth during COVID ended up impacting ability to reach people living in more rural or isolated areas or to provide privacy with care too. For sure. I, you know, we saw a huge number of people really being able to conduct visits virtually. Um, and we were lucky in Metro, OHP, Medicaid in Oregon allowed for reimbursement of telephone visits because a lot of our population yeah. at Cascadia doesn't have access to an iPad or, a, mm-hmm. um, or a, a telephone with video capabilities. We were able to see people by telephone as well. So the access was definitely improved. And now I think it's about, now that we have folks engaged, it's about getting them 
in as best we can or reaching out as best we can to provide excellent quality care. So balancing those two things, I think, are the next steps. Um, so, but some really positive, uh, some really positive things came from our ability to um, reach people in new ways. Yeah, that's huge. Um, you know, it's it, uh, at Cascadia. You know, we see women who who 90% of our population are Medicaid recipients or underserved in some way. Um, and we see people who deal with severe mental health conditions, substance use disorder, houselessness, poverty, social isolation, stigma, all the stuff. <laughs> How can we best support them and advocate for their reproductive care across, you know, at all points at the, across the reproductive continuum? Yeah, that's such an important question. And it's such a, it's such a big one. You know, all the things that we do to try to... I think the number one thing to do is to listen to people and to meet them where they're at. Um, it takes a lot of resources to kind of fold around and take care of people that are in the situations that you're describing. Um, and we need to do that. That's what it's going to take to get them where they are. But it kind of starts with respecting them and their ability to choose and decide for themselves and hearing what they need. Um, it always makes me a little bit sad when I'm taking care of a patient that is in a tough circumstance like that, that's um, on Medicaid, struggle, you know, not employed, um, struggling maybe with some mental health issues or substance use. And the fact, like the deep appreciation and sh first of all, the internal shame they show, but then just how appreciative they are that somebody took the time to listen to them really kind of blows me away because that should be the norm. That shouldn't be something that people are grateful for. Absolutely. I couldn't, couldn't agree more. Yeah. But it does mean that we need to do a better job, I think, within clinics and within health systems of having better relationships with um, wraparound organizations in the community and making sure we have good social work um, as well as well as mental health support within our own um, kind of systems. Absolutely. Um, this has been a really wonderful discussion. <laughs> um, and I really appreciate your time uh, and your expertise in this area. And think we've covered a lot of things that we we were planning on talking about um, well it's been a lot of fun thank you thank you for having me and always nice to chat with you <laughs> likewise Maria thank you sure